Hi, welcome to the Performance Observatory podcast, the home of everyday ethnomusicology, where we discuss the music that we make and the music that makes us. Today is our sixth episode, so thanks so much for coming back. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. So glad to have you here. Today I want to do another discussion on a book that I was very lucky to read and actually get an advanced copy of. It's called Lived Through That. It's the musicians of the 90s as they are today. It's not what you're expecting if you're looking for a where are they now behind the music kind of look. It's a real look at what these musicians are doing today after enjoying their success. Because remember, so many musicians, as they're coming up through the ranks, they have this ideal that getting a major label deal and putting out an album and going on tour and... That's the epitome of their career. Once they have that, they're done. They're, they've reached their goals. And this book really proves that it is far from the case. So I wanted to speak a bit about some of the quotes in the book by various musicians that I feel are particularly interesting and illuminating. So I'm going to go through them one by one and just give you some of my thoughts. You're more than welcome to put your thoughts in the comments. I'm always interested to hear them. And let's start off with a quote from Ben Lee, who was the vocalist and guitar player for the band Noise Addict. And say Noise Addict started at about 1993. And it looks as though they had a rather short career. So I think that they went through till about 95, 96, which really isn't unusual for, for many genres and for many acts. But one of the things that might be truly illuminating as to the length of their career was this quote from Ben Lee. He says here that I battled with my audience almost. I changed a lot and I tried to throw them off my scent and I knew it kind of works. It's taken me time to be an adult and be more respectful of that relationship with my audience. Right off the bat, I read this and I was just like, this guy is swimming upstream. He's going completely and counterintuitively to anything artists understand about progressing their career. We teach artists, we encourage artists, we beseech artists to cultivate their relationship with their audience, to make sure that you're always speaking to them and showing 
gratitude for their time, their attention, their appreciation, because I really personally can't say it enough. In my estimation, the relationship between artist and audience is always going to be something that is predicated on a level of identification. We as individuals identify with qualities that we perceive in those artists. And they may be qualities that we believe we already have in common with those individuals, or they might be qualities that we aspire to have and find or identify within those individuals. And they, of course, can be very obvious, surface, physical qualities. You know, you, you want to be a great dancer on stage. You want to have a great voice. You want to be able to shred out a solo, whatever the case may be. Or it could be that you see in them a great sense of empathy for others or a great sense of autonomy or a great sense of commitment to others. There's a plethora and never-ending list of qualities that we could identify in an artist, and some are there, some are not. Some are heightened by press coverage or lyrical content. It, it really doesn't matter. It's what we identify with that starts to develop our relationship to that artist. And it's really quintessential to our development and to their longevity. So there's always going to be this give and take, which we're negotiating. And that starts with them releasing new material. And then of course it continues on through live engagements and et cetera, through press and publicity and all that other happiness through the industry. So we're always looking at these examples of the artist to see glimpses and nuances of those qualities and ways in which we will heighten them in ourselves or emulate them from the artist or possibly, depending on our own individual growth, come to reassess them in both the artist and ourselves and whether or not they're actually still truly authentic in either case. With that, and the fact that Ben Lee was very, very young when he started with his band, Noise Addict, he was only 14. So that explains a lot about him wanting to continually change and to, quote-unquote, throw his audience off his scent. There's a lot of... As, as many of us understand, a lot of development, a lot of change, a lot of investigation, a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error during that time frame. And of course, being in a band, depending on the overall appeal, to have that level of success and attention at such an age it's easy to see how it would have a contrary effect on this particular musician. It could be just simply that that type of 
attention was not something that he was quite prepared for as of yet. It's something that I personally would love to delve into, but it might be something that he's still processing himself. Then I'm turning to a quote from one of my favorite bands from the era, which is the Cherry Pop and Daddies. I always thought that they were just so rip-roaring fun. Steve Perry of that group, not to be confused with the other Steve Perry. This is, he's the singer-songwriter and producer for the Cherry Pop and Daddies, and also the lead singer and guitarist. He has this theory on why the swing movement took off in the 90s, which, oh my God, it just made music so fun all over again. That's me. That's not the quote yet. <laughs> um, he qu he says, um, Steve Perry of Cherry Poppin' Daddies says, I think what happened was punk rockers grew up a little bit and wanted something a little more sophisticated musically. It was something cool that may not, that may not be everyone would get. Quotes don't always translate into proper English. I'm just going to put that out there. I obviously couldn't get the emphasis that he had in, the, in that conversation or how it was translated off of tape. But I think that the idea of punk rockers maturing musically to want something more sophisticated musically. Punk has always been about the do-it-yourself, no-frills kind of approach to music. And it's, it's also always been a bit aggressive and a little less than a ray of sunshine when, um, when you generally listen to it. Swing, on the other hand if I can use the term in a, a different means, is a complete, like, in my opinion, my opinion, a 180 swing from punk because swing music is just festive. It's the kind of thing that just simply grabs you off the chair, throws you onto the dance floor, and tells you to figure it out and just to get moving because life is precious. So I'm not so sure. And again, somebody I would love to talk to about this quote. I'm not so sure I agree with him because it, it just seems like it's a zero to 60 evolution in this context. I know that punk can continue to grow and mature in its own right. It's not something that you abandon at a certain phase of life. But I don't know that a transition to swing is so natural from the punk movement. Now, granted, I could certainly be coming from the old, old school of punk where we're talking about the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and early Blondie and the like. And, of course, the whole ecosystem of CBGBs. Not necessarily the uh, Green Day punk version of it all. And I guess maybe Blink-182 might fall into that category as well. I just don't see a correlation there. And it could just simply be my own lacking in musical theory or I don't know. 
something. So I'm just curious as to what elements of swing Perry might be referring to that correlates to punk. But either way, I am always just thrilled to hear any kind of swing music come on the radio because it really is just, it's just a ray of sunshine. And it's a ray that I don't have to be overloaded by Katrina and the waves to to ride. (laughs) Hope everybody got the reference. Let's see. Then we have a quote from Brendan Blake of Super Deluxe. These guys started in 95. They were halfway through the, the decade and they were coming up with, or coming up just behind the likes of the Posies and the Goo Goo Dolls. I don't even know that I want to put the Goo Goo Dolls in the same box, but they evolved as they have. Brandon Blake said, Rock and roll is a young man's game, and I think now it's hard to keep an audience or maintain an audience over much time, especially when you let 15 years pass before you release something. It used to be people were more patient but I don't think so anymore. The music business was the wrong hours for raising a kid. So basically, I'm sorry, those are two separate quotes, but Brandon Blake basically stepped away from his um, musical career because he wanted to be a good dad. And he personally didn't feel that being out on tour or being locked in a studio would afford him to be able to raise his family in a way that was conducive to his own values. And I thoroughly, thoroughly respect that. And there are plenty of musicians in this book who felt exactly the same way. There are very few of them that are still actively playing music. I want to concentrate on his comments that rock and roll is not a young man's game and that it's hard to maintain an audience over time. And then he adds to it, especially when you let 15 years pass before you release something. It used to be that people were more patient. I don't think so anymore. Now, it's true. It used to be before technology just went off and started monstrously evolving, basically about the time that vinyl died and CDs happened and then we went to digital and etc. And now we have streaming, yada, 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 and all those ways that music is just able to come at us at our fingertips. It used to be that we would have to wait for the weekly releases to come out on Tuesday, that we'd be listening to radio stations for the premiere of the first single or the next single off of an album. There was also the idea of knowing that that record release was the herald and the call to that artist going on tour and being able to go and see them live. It used to be, particularly in the 70s, where every year an album was put out and a tour was done. And in the 80s, it was pretty much year after year, but sometimes it was more like two years on, two years off, could be just because there was just such a bottleneck of bands coming out in the 80s and everybody was, well, living it up in the 80s. But I really disagree with Blake in that it's difficult to keep and maintain an audience. And of course, 
I'm looking at it as a member of an audience. Because to me, as I said before, it's all about the connection with the artist and the audience and the identification that we share with that artist. To me, this kind of rings a little bit like we had with Ben Lee, where there was a conflict in the relationship between these particular artists and their audience, where Blake seems to put more responsibility on the audience in order to allow him the time, the space, and the air to do what he needs to do. So I don't necessarily agree with him or think that that's a fair ask of an audience. There have been plenty, plenty of acts who have long, spacious times between their releases and between their tours. Most notably, Tool. I think it's been 10 years since their last release. And I think that their tour got cut short by COVID because everything got cut short by COVID. So I don't know that they're the perfect example. And I don't know why Blake decided to specify 15 years or if he's just saying, I don't want to tour again till my kids are 15 years old and they're going to want to go with me as opposed to be feeling left behind. That's thoroughly reading into this, but it's a logical conclusion to draw. With that, I know that there was great enthusiasm for the example of Tool finally doing their album. And there was always a little bit of a internet update or a little sniff as to what was going on just to keep everybody interested in what they were doing and whether or not the lyrics had been written for this song or not, or if they had however many songs, etc., etc., right down to when they were doing the album artwork. With that, if there's the interest from the audience, there's always a way to keep them connected to you. But given the second quote that we have here, that the music business was the wrong hours for raising a kid. To me, that sounds like Blake wanted everything to come to a standstill and everybody wait for him to come back from being a dad. In that instance, yeah, that's a, that's a little bit much to ask. But of course, then there's also the idea of there being... I mean, we talked before, I think in our sep- second episode, about the idea of there being two types of musicians those of the eye and those of the ear, according to Stuart Copeland. There are also two kinds of musicians, and they are distinguished by those who prefer to stay in the studio and those who want to get out on the road or feel most comfortable performing. The ones who stay in the studio, they don't necessarily tour with every release that they do, and certainly every release they do does not come out every year or even every two years. But their audiences understand that about those artists, Um, whether it's Pink Floyd or maybe Rush, where everybody understands that their personality is to really hone in on the recording and the musicality of it and keeping the quality up there. That's why they're the legends that they are 
and have the place in music history that they do. And not to knock Super Deluxe Blake or anything from the 90s saying that there's no possibility for them with that, but it's, again, a communication with your audience. It's simply sharing with them that you have a passion for the studio and for making things just right. And you've got this attention to detail and a challenge to create something that is really harnessed in your love of musical theory or whatever the explanation is. And I just sense a little bit of resentment with Brandon Blake in this comment because I respect him wholly for wanting to be a dad and for wanting to be home with those children. But to put the onus on the audience just doesn't ring true to me because it's a choice that anybody has to make. Once you have kids, do you want to continue with the career that you have, whether you're male or female? And it happens every day with the birth of every child. It always comes down to the question of, do I want to leave them? But I think think that Brandon Blake has has obviously moved on from what he was doing with Super Deluxe in a way that has made him content, but I think quite possibly down the line we might be talking about this quote again as it relates to the artist and audience relationship. So until then, feel free to put your, your comments down there and let me know what you think. Now, this next one is going to be a little difficult because it's a quote from Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne, who very sadly we lost in April of 2020 due to complications with the COVID pandemic. So there's no... Diving more deeply into this, there's no asking for a more in-depth discussion. There's nothing else that we can do other than take it at its face value. So the quote that I have from Schlesinger is, that's one of the hardest things when you're starting out as a young musician is to figure out what your musical identity is. I remember struggling with that a lot when I was in my teens and early 20s because I liked so much different music. At some point, I realized I could be the guy that liked a lot of different things. It's not necessarily avoiding a choice. It's actually me playing to my strengths. And that is a really beautiful quote that makes me want to sit down with this guy and really dive deep into his overall psychology as it pertains to music. So I am particularly saddened that that's not an opportunity out there. But it also allows us to once again come back to the words of Brandon Lee where he says, I battled with my audience. I changed a lot and I worked to throw them off my scent. And it kind of works. Most importantly in what he says in relation to what Adam Schlesinger said, it's taken me time to be an adult and be more respectful of that relationship with my audience. 
with Schlesinger, he shows that it's part of the evolution of the musician, of the musician's identity to accept all the variations of what is in them and the fact that it's all there to come out and produce a music that is wholly and solely their own. It's an incredible thing that any of us can find appreciation for an unending number of genres of music. And somehow some of us come together in one package and say, when I write this, you can hear a little bit of classical. You can hear a little bit of hip hop. You can pull in a little bit of Willie Nelson and bada bing, bada boom. I've got a song and so many people like it. Isn't that cool? And I think that that's really where Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne sat ever so comfortably. Even though this quote shows that he had a lot of conflict initially, he really truly grew into the idea that that having so many influences and liking so many different things was his superpower. They all had some kind of relationship that came out through him and made something that gave joy, enjoyment, some level of fulfillment, and also probably a good bit of resilience to the people who heard his music. And so, again, I say this one is difficult because this is obviously someone that I personally would love to have had a conversation with regarding his musical philosophies and ideologies. This next one is John Wozniak of Marcy's Playground. And let's see. It's something that's in regards to specifically sex and candy. He had definitely a love-hate relationship with this song, evidently, even though everybody was waiting for that particular song to hit in the playlist that they had for the, any performance. He says here, I just started messing and playing around with it and getting the audience involved with it and making it fun. The thing about performing live music is that if you treat a song you're playing, even if you've played it a million times, if you treat it like it's the very first time you've ever played it, with that kind of curiosity and immediacy, it's impossible to resent the song. Now I always enjoy playing it, and it gets the crowd amped, and I can really have fun with it. So every artist of note develops a repertoire where they eventually have a signature song or many signature songs for the Rolling Stones. I don't, I don't think anybody is going to let them off of a stage before they play satisfaction. And we don't know if there's been any resentment whatsoever built up in any of them towards that particular song over the years. I can understand playing something a gajillion times to the nth power is going to give you the attitude, even if it's your own song, of not that record, not that record. <laughs> so it seems that John Wozniak got to that place 
fairly easily and quickly with their song Sex and Candy. And if I remember correctly, it was his bandmates that really kind of picked up on his aggravation with the song and kind of set him to thinking that being a little bit more innovative with playing it instead of feeling he had to stay true to the recorded version was able to help him move past his frustration and his exhaustion with the song. So with that, I think that it's really important for all of us to understand that it could happen to us too. I've seen it before, particularly with Bon Jovi, where they change up a lot of their songs in arrangements when they perform live, and I'm ever so thankful for it sometimes because I've gotten to the point where I just like, I want to feel something new about those songs. I don't necessarily subscribe to enjoying them just as they originally were. And that's going to be reflective of personal growth on either side. So it could be that John Wozniak had just simply moved past whatever inspiration brought about the song Sex and Candy and couldn't get past that he had grown since writing that song and therefore had to find a way to reintroduce himself to that song on a nightly basis when he plays it. It's one of those things where we can chalk it up just simply to boredom with playing a song for the umpteenth time the same way, but I think that it really does speak to an evolutionary process. And with that, it could be interesting to look for ourselves when we're at events, when we're at a concert, that we say, oh, they switched up the arrangement on this. Could that mean that they're going through an adjustment period or a reacclimation with that material, with that time in their lives? And it might be interesting to stop and say, okay, with that particular material, is that something that was written for them by somebody outside of the band? Or was it something that they wrote together or one person wrote by themselves? And just for myself, I would really just be so entertained trying to figure that out as I'm watching a show. Believe me, if you were in the car with me on the way back, it would sound very much like this conversation where I'd be like, you know, they wrote that at this point in time with this going on. So when they changed up like this, I really think that that implies and reading so much into what might just be a very benign activity of just simply wanting to switch it up for a night. But when it's something as consistent as what Wozniak is saying in regards to his relationship with this particular song, Sex and Candy, I think that we can confidently say that it may just be an episode or a central point in his growth as an individual and likely as a musician. It's definitely something that as an audience member, as a fan, that we might not be cognizant of, but it could also be one of those moments that comes along and starts to show us the shift in their musicality, in their songwriting, and possibly in their values 
the same way that it happened for the likes of Brandon Blake, where he had just grown past the idea of being a touring musician and wanted to be a stay-at-home father. Not to say that every transition on stage, not to say that every little switch-up for entertainment purposes playing songs is going to be the herald of somebody going off and being a stay-at-home dad or stay-at-home mom. It's just simply marking that there is evolution going on, and we can see that in the musicians playing, in their artistry. So there's quite possibly a relation between how older material is played live and the newer material that they're creating and possibly future material that they create. But again, I'm theorizing right here as we go along. The next quote that I wanted to investigate a little bit with you, just chaw on it a little bit, is from Bill Janovitz of Buffalo Tom. He said, when you're a musician in your 20s and 30s, it's your life. It's who you are. It's your self-definition. So I was really like, what am I? I never thought it was going to last forever. But am I a real estate agent? Am I a writer? I still don't know, but I've come to terms with not really caring. I am who I am, and I do what I do. This is another individual who has kind of backburnered their career and moved on to other things, whether it was by choice like Blake did with becoming a dad or simply by necessity when their careers started coming down the slope that they had gone up for their success. And like anything else, a musical career does wax and wane and, you know, wax again and wane again and wax again and wane again. It all depends on where you put your effort. So Janovitz has moved on and become a real estate agent. He's written a book. He's also in his 50s now. And so that's where he says the identification that you have in your youth, you know, for him, he latched onto the identification of being a musician. That was it. That was all. And he was likely one of those who said, I'm a musician. I'm going for a record deal. And that's going to be my life. That is my dream. He achieved that. Bravo. He achieved that. It is a stellar accomplishment. But now he's also moved on from that and gotten a quote unquote real job as a real estate agent. I'm sure that he still plays around and does different gigs and recordings and stuff and plays with friends, but his living seems to come from other sources as opposed to music. And he's just fine with that because he's gone through his own evolution and understood that what he does or what he's capable of doing as a musician isn't necessarily the end-all be-all in everything of how he defines himself. And this is not something that is exclusive to musicians. This happens for every person. It happens to mail carriers. It happens to chefs. It happens to executives. It's really just the idea of what we refer to as coming into your own or coming into yourself. We all are working towards the ideal version of ourselves 
or just simply the ideal that we're at the current self that we are and still evolving into the next best version of ourselves. We're always on the road of change for the destiny that's always going to be unobtained. I think it was Matthew McConaughey who said that his idol is himself five years down the line because that way he'll always have an idol because he'll always be growing and changing and evolving. Huge tangent right there, but relative to the topic. We're going to wind up with Adrian Young of No Doubt. He, of course, was, is, was, whatever, their drummer and a very theatrical guy and a very sweet guy, if I must reveal that. But he's just one of those drummers that is so fun to watch because he is the quintessential drummer who is full of energy, full of life, full of enthusiasm, and as the compatriots across the pond from where I am here in Philadelphia say, a wee bit cheeky. So the quote from Adrian Young was, our main goal, and I think I can speak for my bandmates when I say this, was if we could go sell out clubs across the country, that would be truly remarkable. We had been able to do that in Southern California with no airplay. Obviously, radio play would be necessary to do that across the country. But if we sold 100,000 records, that would have been amazing. What unfolded was, well, I still look back on it and think I can't believe that happened. I speak to a lot of musicians at various stages in their careers all the time. And I really loved reading that quote because... He and his bandmates had a dream. They had a goal. And I think that it's the best goal that they could possibly have and that many musicians should have. And that is basically wanting to simply be a professional musician, to be able to tour, to be able to record and appeal to whatever number of people they appeal to, but still earn their living by their craft. He was obviously amazed by what happened to their career, whether it was just simply the presence of Gwen Stefani or the whole story of her and Gavin Rosdale from the joint tour and their resulting marriage and family. But overall, they had a relatively small and obtainable goal as musicians, selling 100,000 albums throughout the country of the United States, very obtainable. And then they just simply exploded. He was prepared for one level and one definition of success and managed to get the lottery ticket of stardom, of what possibly could end up being a legacy status within the musical world. That's beautiful, especially when that's not your target goal. When you're not saying that you want to be the next so-and-so, when you just simply put a goal on the number of sales and the ability to, to make a living and to go out and enjoy doing what you're doing just simply for the sake of it, 
and then to be recognized with the tremendous success that they were is really something worth taking note of. The ideal of having this outlandishly successful career is the dream of millions. It is. I will confess that I held on to that dream for many years, even though I never took any action towards it. But there is a level of respect and admiration that I have personally for the many musicians that I know that have long-standing careers that are able to live, succeed, and thrive by their musical careers, even though whenever I bring up their name, people don't know them. They don't recognize their name. They're not household names, but there are people populating the entire earth who will go out and see them, that they can go to different towns and sell tickets for 100 or 200 people and play to sold out events and still just simply be able to say, I'm a professional touring musician. I'm a professional musician. And to me, at this stage and experience, both in life and in the music business, I really have to say that that, in my perspective, is the end-all, be-all, and ideal career as a musician. It's certainly the thing of legends, if you think back to those like Robert Johnson, who was revered by so many over the last few generations, but died penniless and basically unknown. So, not that I want anybody to die penniless and alone, or unappreciated, but I think that the goals we set, if we set them to be obtainable and we reach those, there's no telling what can come about from that. So possibly the greatest road to success is just simply meeting a particular goal and letting life happen from there. So to surmise, Live Through That 90s Musicians Today by Mike Hipple. It's definitely a good read. It's a rather quick read, and it's worthwhile, particularly if you're a fan of the scene from the 90s. If you came of age in the 90s, I think you'll really enjoy it. I believe that it comes out October 12th of 2021. Check it out. Enjoy it. And thank you very much for sitting with us here at the Performance Observatory. Check back with us again for episode seven, where I'm going to be talking about the Nirvana Baby and the lawsuit pertaining to the album cover. Thanks so much for joining us today. Again, as always, please visit us at theperformanceobservatory.com and feel free to leave comments in the comments section. Looking forward to your thoughts. Have a great day.